Most of the male runners figured if any woman wants to run 26 miles in a driving rain, let her run. But veteran Boston trainer Jock Semple thought the whole thing was silly. No, there's enough competition for women. What the heck? Why did they want to tackle the, the, the toughest thing in the world? It's just the women and their stubbornness just want to do something that they're not supposed to do. That's all there is to it. You know that. You're married. That was 50 years ago. In the time since, women have made remarkable progress towards equality in sport. Today, 40% of all athletes are women, and yet women still receive less than 4% of media coverage. The Iron Woman podcast wants to help change that. We interview female professional athletes and other remarkable women making breakthroughs in endurance, sport, and research. So that when I grow up, I will have heroes. I'm Alyssa Gadeski. I'm Haley Chura. And I'm Rosalie. And you're listening to the Iron Women Podcast. Okay, Alyssa, imagine you're stranded on a deserted island and you have to pick one thing to drink for the rest of your life. What would you choose? Haley, I think I'd have to go with Noon Sport watermelon flavor. Nice choice. Personally, I'd opt for the Noon Endurance lemon lime flavor because in my deserted island fantasy, I'm still getting in regular 90-minute workouts. That sounds totally reasonable. The good news is that all Noon Hydration products are made with clean, quality ingredients that are good for your body and the planet. So if you ever find yourself on a deserted island, or maybe just in the middle of a really long training day, you'll be thankful that Iron Women podcast listeners get 30% off all Noon Hydration purchases by using the code IRONWOMEN at NoonLife.com. And now, the ladies you've been waiting for... Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. Bye for now. Haley, welcome back, you 243 marathon. Are you? I am so excited to hear all about this. I'm gonna like grill you on everything, but first, how are you feeling today? <laughs> I'm a little sore, Alyssa, but I'm pretty happy. Um, I, I ran this California International Marathon yesterday. We're recording this on Monday. The race was on Sunday. I am home. I flew back from Sacramento today. And it was, it was so wild. It was such a different race experience than racing a triathlon. Am I but going wait, to? don't talk about the race I'm yet. Yes, you're going. Fast. I just want to know how you feel. Like, are you sore? Are you able to walk downstairs normally? What's the, what's the deal? I'm like at this stage, I'm, I'm sore and I'm definitely, yeah. Walking downstairs is hard. Like at the airport when I like had to use the restroom and like getting onto, you like falling onto the toilet and hoping you like make it. I'm at that stage. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> sore. I am. I mean, like I can walk. I made it okay, but and I, nothing hurts. It's like good soreness. It's soreness from effort, which I appreciate. I mean, I would. I would be sad if I wasn't sore. Then I'd be like, oh, I should have gone faster. <laughs> 
Well, I'm not surprised that you're sore, but okay. So I have some questions for you. And the first one is about like your prep, right? So this was something I didn't want to ask in the build because you never want like anyone to start questioning their build or like what they've done. Right. But so I'm sure people are curious to know how the training for this did compare to like Ironman training for you. Like I specifically, can you talk about maybe how many miles a week you were running when you were doing this marathon prep compared to what you would do in a normal Ironman build? Yes. So I basically started the marathon prep after 70.3 worlds, the beginning of September. So I guess that gave me three months, you know, of like basically like focused marathon training, which I mean, I had a lot of fitness coming in, but I drastically dropped back my swim and my bike because I knew sub 245, which is the Olympic marathon trials cut was going to be a big ask. So I knew I had to really focus on running. And so I, my coach, Matthew Rose, who's also my coach for triathlon, he coached me through the marathon and we, he basically had a, I mean, a fairly, I don't know. I don't know if it was aggressive or conservative. Um, it was just the only plan I've ever done, but it was like, it felt like a lot less, a lot less like, or it was, it was a lot less hours. Like, so a normal triathlon, I mean, even 70.3 Ironman, you're probably like 25 to 30 hours, right. Of training a week. And I was probably closer to 10 at my max for marathon 10 to 12, which is significantly less, but I was so tired and it like, it was so different because running wears you out. And my biggest weekly mileage was I think 70 miles a week, which for marathoners is probably on the lower side, but as someone who normally runs probably even doing Ironman, like 30 miles a week, that was a significant increase. And the whole time I was like checking in with myself structurally, like how does everything feel? Cause again, this was, this was different for my body. I don't normally run this much. And also I, I really did try to not look at what other runners do because I think you get in this, like, you know, this mileage game where you're like, people are running hundred mile weeks. Like I should be running a hundred mile week. And I was like, Nope, I have to stick with my plan. Believe in my plan. Like this is where I am in my life right now. And 70 is a lot for me and 70 is enough. And so I'm really happy with that because I was pretty fatigued getting through 70 miles a week, to be honest. I don't know if I could have done much more. I would, I would need like an entire year, I think of focused running to get any higher. Okay. And so we are going to talk about the race day now. And so I want to know what was going through your mind, like in the start, because road marathons to me are so different than Ironman, right? Because like, especially if you get to the marathon portion on Ironman, you're like often in the, if you're in the pro field, you're like solo sometimes, right? You might not see another person for like a while. And so now you're going to have like all these people around you. So did, what was that like in the kind of like warm up time? How many people, like, did you just feel claustrophobic at all? Or were you really feeding off the energy? Like I know a lot of women go to California international marathon trying to qualify. So like, were you guys finding each other? What was it like? Alyssa, you, you described it pro- like exactly where it's just, it's so different than an Ironman than a triathlon. Like I was shocked how different it was. And I haven't done a road marathon since 2008. So it's been 11 years. And even that one, the last one I did was fairly small. So I was not prepared for how crowded it was. I did get to warm up with fellow pro retired pro Caroline Gregory. We found each other somehow within all the people and we did our little warm up together. So that felt kind of normal. And I have to give a shout out to Caroline because she helped me out because as I was taking my sweats off, Alyssa, I realized that my shorts were on inside out. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) 
<laughs> this is what happens when you get dressed at four in the morning. And so she like helped me. It, like there's like thousands of people around, right? And the lines for the portifies was too long. So I was like tying my like jacket around my waist and like zipping it up. And like she was like helping me like take my shorts off in like the middle of all these people and turn them right side out. So I did run with my new Smash Fest Queen booty shorts right side out. That crisis was averted. But for me, it was a little bit more relaxed than a, than a an Ironman or a triathlon even 70.3 just because I guess the pressure wasn't quite as much there I wasn't going for prize money yes I had a very specific goal but it wasn't again my life trajectory probably wouldn't have changed significantly had I not made the goal it was more like let's see if I can do it and then the start went off and Alyssa this race is like it's so the field's really deep like there were a lot of women going for that 245 cut and so I was not, I was in the general admission, kind of the general throngs of people. And Carolyn and I got up as far to the front as we could. And so there was a, like an elite wave and then a seated wave and then us. But there were a couple other women around me who were like, yeah, we're going for 245 too. And we're just going to like get up to the front as fast as we can. And then even some of the guys that were like, yeah, I'm looking for all the women because I want to run a 245. So we, I mean, I was probably a thousand people back <laughs> to be honest, but it was, I, it took me, I think 16 seconds to get across the line because the child's cut, you have to go by gun time, not chip time. So that was one of the, the so all the, those people are probably like, let's get over the line. <laughs> like, let's yes, go. Like, let's go. And so, and everyone was I mean, it was weird because I was running really fast and then everyone is running really fast. Like, again, I'm like running in 1000th place running like a 615 mile. And that doesn't happen at like a normal, even other marathons that I've done and definitely different than an Ironman. Like, again, like you said, a lot of times in Ironman, you are, you're kind of solo and maybe it gets a little crowded if it's multi-loop and you start to like catch people. But this was like, it was like, massive packs and we're all running like the same speed and Alyssa at the very beginning I somehow ended up ahead of the 245 pace group I was looking for the 245 pace group because they did have that and I was like I'm just gonna uh like sneak in with them and somehow I got ahead of them in the first mile because I probably went out a little fast and then I was like where are they where are they and then I could like hear them and it was like this noise coming behind me. And I was like, oh my goodness, it sounds like I'm going to get trampled. And one of the women running next to me, she's like, oh my God, look behind. There's like a thousand people right behind us. And I was like, I'm not looking, I'm not looking. And so then I kind of like, I did at one point kind of like slow up a little and they like kind of swallowed me. And then it was like, so hot so hot in this group of people and I was like oh I can't do this so I ended up running a little bit in front of the 245 pace group and then I got a, I had I pulled away when I felt a little good I like did put a little distance just because the noise of it was like so intimidating that I honestly was like I need to like find a smaller group so I found like a smaller group of like you know five to 10 men and women that I could kind of tuck in with and pace off of and I just hoped that they were planning to run around my pace <laughs> That's super interesting. I hadn't really thought of like how the body heat and just like having all those people close together running would like affect it. Cause you guys have pretty good weather for running. Right. And then also, yeah, like the noise, like I said, like you're just so used to being just only hearing yourself, I guess, in triathlon, like an Ironman yeah. and stuff that to all of a sudden have to deal with all of that. It's like, it's a lot. So, okay. Next questions though. Pacing. So you talked a little bit about this. Did you, what was your pacing plan and how did you nail that? And then when was it in your race that you knew you had the, the sub two forty five? 
So my plan was to run 615 pace, which I think 245 is like 617 pace. So 615 was just a little easier in my brain. Like I could kind of think about every four miles is about 25 minutes. And that math was just a little easier. And I knew I had to make up those like 16 to, I was estimating 16 to 30 seconds from the start that I started back. So 615 pace was my goal. And Alyssa, it was so mentally stressful to run like looking at your watch and trying to go to a specific pace versus how we normally race in a, in an Ironman and a triathlon. It's like more about racing. Like time doesn't really matter. You're more like reacting to your competitors and you're, you know, you might be looking at pacing, but it's just, it's not as big of a deal. Like your time doesn't matter as much as your place. And so it was really, it was weird. It was really weird to be like looking at my watch and not necessarily worrying about what my the other people on the road were doing because again there are like thousands of them and just being like okay like check in with myself and so I was I was pretty proud of myself for sticking really close to 615 um some of the there were some like rolling hills in the beginning and I kind of think of it almost like a bike you know where I'm like okay keep your power level like so I would slow down a bit on the uphills and then like try to lean into it on the downhills and that one was weird because I felt like everyone else would like surge up the uphills and I was like okay just let them go you know and I think that helped me later I felt really good around mile 10 because I saw my cousin Richie was there and I was staying with him and his family and he and his family were out there and they were just kind of going crazy and that was really fun um, around mile 10 and then I saw like when Whenever I'd see some people in the crowds, I felt pretty good. And then around mile 19, I felt like fantastic, like the best I have in the whole race. And it was kind of unexpected. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to pick it up a little bit. So I started like, I was like, I'm going to just see what I can do here. And then I hit mile 21 and I was like, oh no, I feel terrible. (laughs) I was like, so I had like two miles of bliss. And then I was like, oh no, oh no. And I was getting kind of nervous because five miles felt like a long way. And I'm like, can I hold it? And I knew my margin was like pretty narrow. Cause I had been like, just right on that 615, and I hit the 40 kilometer mark and they had a clock and I think I was going over it and it's, it was right at two thirty five. And so I was like, okay, I have 10 minutes to run two kilometers. That's like five minute kilometers. And I don't know why I'm thinking metric system because I'm like in my brain, I'm like, oh, the harder the math, the better. But um, I'm like, I know I can, I'm pretty sure I can run a five minute kilometer. (laughs) So that was like the point when I kind of knew it. But then the last mile, I don't know if this is, I mean, this is always how it is. Every race ever, the last mile is always so long, right? And you're like running by the Capitol and you have to kind of make a U-turn and they had like a half mile to go sign and then 400 meters to go and then 200 to go. And when I got to 200 to go, I'm like, okay, it's like less than a minute. Like you're going to make it. But it wasn't honestly until I crossed that line and saw like the 243 above. And I was like, sure. I was under the gun time and everything that I knew I made it. And I'm still kind of in shock like a day later. Cause I, again, I didn't know. I was like, I have no idea what this, and I'm shocked that I kept my pacing. So, so consistent. I don't think I'm known for that in triathlon quite as well. So maybe some good takeaways. <laughs> well, yeah, people are going to be scared to, to run against you now in triathlon, I think after this one, but what was the first thing you did as a celebration? What was like your first drink food? What was it? Well, I have to say the first thing I did when I crossed the line was I heard 
it, this was the craziest thing. So I heard them call the name of Ruth Brennan Mori, who is a for other, uh, she's a retired professional triathlete. And she was, when Ruth and I were racing, we raced quite a bit when, as triathletes. And we had very different race strategies because I'm swimmer off the front. And then all the time, Ruth was always chasing me down all day. And then we had several races where we finished like third and fourth or like fifth and sixth. Like we would switch the order, but very frequently, even with very, very vastly different race plans, we'd finish like one person apart, you know, one point like on the podium. And, and so, and Ruth is one of my favorite competitors when I was sad, when she retired and I knew she was at CIM, but I hadn't seen her. I hadn't seen her the entire race. And then I crossed the line and she finished two people behind me, Alyssa. I like heard them call her name and I was like, you have got to be kidding me. Out of 8,000 people, we finished only two people apart. And so the first thing I did was turn around to give her a hug because one of my best memories from triathlon was when Ruth gave me a hug after I won Buenos Aires 70.3. It was my first win post crash and come back and she gave me this hug that I just remember and so I turned around to give her a hug as she came across and she came to give me a hug and then this other woman like stepped in between us and gave her a hug like stole the hug from me like she's she's like so like Ruth we were like running at each other like going to give a hug and then someone stepped in between us and hugged Ruth and I was like oh I guess that woman knows her and I was like it must be someone else from Minnesota and then Ruth like finishes hugging this woman it's like I don't know her. <laughs> it was like, it was just, I think people were just hugging everyone because it was like, we made it. And then I got a hug with Ruth. So that was the first thing I did. And then, um, my actually another triathlon friend who I met at a triathlon camp in Louisville, Kentucky in like 2011, she was there with her kids and she got some great photos and we, we went and got tacos, me and her and her kids. So that was kind of the first celebration. And then following that, we met up with some other triathletes who were there, which was pretty cool and had some beers and it was, it was fun. Like that was really fun. And it was weird to be done by like 10 AM. That was quite nice. <laughs> Okay. And so Haley, I have to like go through this for people who may not know. So you qualified obviously for the marathon Olympic trials, which are happening in February in Atlanta. And this is actually going to be your third appearance at an Olympic trials, which is like, I'm, I've been racking my head. I'm so bad at trivia. So in my head, like you are the only person that can have this claim to fame of like different sports, right? So you were in the 2004 Olympic trials in the 2008, correct? Yes. For swimming. Swimming. For swimming. <laughs> yes. Right. For, so for swimming. And then now in, you know, the 2020 marathon. So again, I've been racking my brain trying to think of something. I, I obviously don't know track like that well. And I'm assuming there could be someone maybe who's like, but even still like track to marathon is like pretty like you're a runner, right? Generally speaking. So like to be going to the Olympic trials for swimming and running like such different disciplines, like such different athletic like feats. I'm just so, so impressed. And I have to do even say that this happened for you three years, right? After your accident where you were hit by a car while you were riding your bike, you had, you know, just like in a tremendous time going through everything that then came along with that. And so I've been able to like watch you through all this. And now I'm crying because I'm like thinking of that year in Kona when you, you know, didn't finish the bike that year. And it's like, 
I guess I'm just curious, like what you would tell yourself, like if you could go back three years or even two and a half years, like going through some of that struggle, knowing what you do now and being where you are now, like what would you tell Haley Chura of that time? Oh gosh. Now you're going to make me cry, but I, um, it is crazy. It's weird to hear you say that. Cause I don't think I've like thought of it in those kind of terms. And there were so many times after that crash when I didn't know if I'd ever run again, like, to be honest, like I didn't know if I would ever run even like a mile again. And I remember my first run back and it was one minute long and I was so scared and yeah, I, I, it hasn't sunk in. I mean, it's crazy and it does show that like consistent work. I mean, I haven't been since that point, I have not been injured at all. And my recovery, I give my coach, Matthew Rose, I give him so much credit because he was so patient with me in my like year and a half where I was like learning to run again. And he was so patient and I'm really thankful because I never felt like pressured to like get back to a certain level. And we just took it like one day, one week at a time and just built off that and really focused on staying healthy, you know, getting as healthy as possible. And honestly, like, I feel like I am living proof that like consistency works. You know, if you can stay healthy and just get in consistent work. And because I, I, especially this marathon build, I had zero like standout, really great runs. You know, I had one long run that was like really good, but it wasn't, I mean, I probably did most of it at about eight minute pace. And I had, but like a lot of my treadmill, cause that's what I did was basically long runs or aerobic runs outside and then treadmill for speed work. And I missed a lot of intervals. Like to be honest, like there were a lot of days when, I mean, I joke about crying on the treadmill, but there were a lot of days when I was like, I don't know if I can hold this pace. And it is, I think it is a testament of, of consistency works, taper works, you know, like this is a reason why we taper. And, and then also like, if you do have a big setback like that, like you don't lose everything from before, like you're still a good athlete. And even if you have an injury of some kind and you have to like take time off, you don't lose everything. Yes, it might take a year to get it back, but eventually you'll get back. And so I guess those are like the big things, but it is crazy. It's crazy for me to be think of myself as a 200 backstroker back in 2004, you know, I was 18 and I thought like a two minute race was so long. And now I'm like training to go for like a, you know, two hour and 43 minute race. It's kind of, it is crazy. And my mom did some, she was trying to do some research to find out if anyone had done that before and she couldn't find anything. So maybe if any of our listeners are like historians, because again, like you, I'm like, I feel like there probably has been someone like I was trying to think of Sheila Teramina. Like I know she, she did swimming triathlon and modern pentathlon, but I don't know if she did like marathon. Um, I know Joanna Zeiger did like triathlon and marathon, but I, I can't imagine too many did 200 backstroke and well, the marathon. And <laughs> they're like, who is it? Lolo Jones, right? The track and field. She tried to cross over into winter Olympics for some things, but like that, yeah. I don't even, she might've gone to the trials, I guess, but I mean, there's definitely not a lot. So either way, you're in the company of greatness, Haley, and we're just very, it's like invaluable to have you as part of the Iron Women podcast. And our listeners should all be very appreciative of having you at their fingertips every week. And so we do have a show for everyone. Um, but thank you for that recap. And so switching gears here, we do have just a few more weeks until Christmas, Haley. And so 
if people are looking to do any of their last minute holiday shopping, it's getting to that point now where like you got to order the things if you're doing, if you're, if you need them to be shipped. So head to livefeisty.com forward slash shop or just livefeisty.com and you can see the shop at the top banner and click on that. There's a lot of new gear, makes really great secret Santa gifts. It makes really good stocking stuffers, some of that stuff, phone case, men's clothes, all sorts of things for people. And if anyone didn't listen last week, we went through like all of our, our suggested holiday shopping with all of our sponsor partners. So thank you to anyone who has done their holiday shopping with, with the Iron Women podcast in mind, either through the feisty holiday shop or with any of our sponsors. We really do appreciate your support. And Haley, we have a mailbag question that came in. It's very timely given the week that we're talking. So this is from Rachel. And just a reminder, our listeners can send questions to ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com if you want to fill up our mailbag and have your questions answered. And Rachel is curious about how we maintain fitness during off season. So do we try to maintain fitness in all three disciplines, use the time to work on other things like strength training, do fun things like snowshoeing or skiing? Um, how do we feel about spin classes during this time? And she points out that for most people running a 243 marathon is not a normal off season activity for triathletes. So great question, Rachel and Haley, I would say that you haven't been in off season just quite yet, right? No, I would not have called this the off season. Again, I drastically dropped my total training time, but it was still really hard. <laughs> And so I, I have, I wouldn't call it an off season. It was just a different kind of thing. If I'm actually taking an off season, like, so this time last year I did, and I took two weeks almost completely off. I might've gone, I did, I don't, I, I might've gone like rock climbing once, like for fun with friends, but it was probably like one hour of that. And it was, and that's something I don't usually do in the season because I was actually quite sore. And so, and I'm not very good at it. I have gone once I've gone like skate skiing, but again, it was like for one hour, I was not very good at it. So I guess I've tried a couple of things, but for the most part, I kind of embrace like almost very little activity. I take cowboy for walks. Um, I really love walking, but that is honestly what my off season looks like for my athletes. I probably, a lot of them will do more than two weeks. Maybe like they might, you know, do longer. And so I'd say like, I give them a lot of like their guidance is more like exercise during that time versus train. And so, you know, if you feel like going for a 30 minute run, go for a run. Yes. If you feel like going for a spin class, go for a spin class, but you don't have to put it on the hardest setting. You know, I've done that before where you're like, they're like, turn it right, make it harder. And I turn it left instead. <laughs> but, um, so I think like, you know, go for fun, go for the social part, but like have it be exercise versus training. Cause you need that mental break too. I agree. Haley, I actually, I went to two soul cycle classes over the Thanksgiving break with my sister. And so I, I definitely was like cheating on the spinning of the resistance knob. Cause I was like, excuse me, I already started with this very hard. So like, I can't go any further. Like, also, no, do they do like, no like I've done one where it's like three minutes of warm up, and then it's like, okay, now level 10. And I'm like, yes. what? I'm like, I need like 30 minutes of warm up. I'm an endurance athlete here. But I agree. And I think, um, I think kind of like, like you, I would say off season for me is definitely broken into two parts, right? It's like off season where it is like off season as a break where I'm not doing a lot of exercise at all. I'm, you know, nothing if I don't want to, I, I will say that 
in the years I still plan to be competing professionally, I don't take time completely out of the pool because as a non-swimmer, that is one thing where if you spend a lot of time out of the pool, it just, it will come back, but it just takes a really long time to come back. And typically like, depending on how I'm envisioning my season, I might not want to like have to take all of the time to get it back. So I do go to masters like two to three times a week, even if I'm not doing anything else during that time. And to be honest, like, like you said, I might not swim as hard as I can, right. Or like try and hit my like fastest numbers, but I'm in the pool, I'm touching the water. And I do think a big part of it for me too, is like the social aspect, because if I wasn't going to masters, I might not like see anyone that day and, (laughs) and I might not like leave my house. So it's kind of like a good reason to like, quote, still go to work and get outside the house for me. And And then I also, though, I would say I take like that kind of a break or like off season type of breaks a lot during the year, you know, like I'm not afraid to do that in the middle of the summer and take a few weeks easy or something. If I'm like kind of shifting gears with races or that sort of thing. I mean, these days we have Ironman like all the time year round. So it might be something where we want to take a break in July or August and then gear up for that like late season of racing, you know, and it's late season, just the way we're accustomed to thinking about how the season is. But as pros, it, it definitely can be a little different. But I, I thinking back to like my amateur days, I think I did a lot more of like a standard kind of structure where it was, I would take my break and then come back and probably focus on a weakness. And for me, that meant swimming a lot of times in the winter. It's just such a good time to really spend that time in the pool. Haley, I think you and I, you like in the early years of us knowing each other, we had done like, I think met for a swim or, or I think we were going to meet for a swim. And then I realized how much faster you were. So then we ended up going to that Thai place instead or something yes, like that. But like, we did. You, <laughs> you find other reasons to like, you know, get that big base in. And I've done it like years with the bike and stuff like that. So I, I definitely have used like six to eight weeks during, you know, quote off season, but it's not like I'm actually training again off season to put in a big block to work on a weakness. And during that time, like it is, it's back to business. You know, it's not like I'm not going to do a spin class. I'm, I'm going to be on my bike. I, I also don't ski because of fear of injury. So like I do say like, it's a great time to do all sorts of fun things that you don't get to do, but like, just be careful. You know, you hear a lot of stories about injuries happening during that time. So you just, you do, I think want to be like a little, like have fun, but be careful. I don't ski either. And there's like amazing skiing very close to me, but not at this point in life. It's nice to have things that like you could look forward to later in life. Like maybe later in life I will go skiing and enjoy it. But right now I'm like, I love what I'm doing and I do not need anything holding me back. And yeah. And yeah. Don't turn your off season into injury season. Be careful. Reading a book is good too. Like sleeping more, all that kind of stuff. Watching some movies. That's, you know, I think those are great off season activities too. And Haley, we do have an interview for our listeners today. So why don't you tell us who we're talking to? We have a great interview. And this one, this one has a little bit of Olympic trials theme because we're talking to Abby Fish. And Abby is a fellow University of Georgia swimmer. She she actually is a little younger than me, so we weren't on the team at the same time. But she's also an Olympic trials qualifier in swimming. She worked at USA Swimming's headquarters after college and also at the prestigious race club, which is, I believe, in Key West. It's very well known in the swimming world. And she's an expert on swim technique and on she loves giving technical advice. That's what she does as a living now through her swim like a fish coaching program. So we're going to ask talk to um, talk to Abby a little bit about her background in swimming. And then also, what are some some things we can be working on this time of year for our swim technique at 
all levels. So we'll have that conversation with Abby right after the break. The Iron Woman podcast is proud to be supported by Zelio Skincare. Zelio's products are designed and tested by champion triathletes like myself. I know I can count on their high quality and long lasting ingredients to stand the test of the hottest, sweatiest days when I'm racing and training. Have the peace of mind to perform at your best without worrying about your skin and hair products. The products you won't want to train or compete without include Sun Barrier SPF 45, Betwixt All Natural Chamois Cream, Swim and Sport Shower Products, and Body Lotion. You can get 20% off at teamzelios.com by using the code IRONWOMEN. Yep, you heard it right. Get 20% off your Zelios order with the code IRONWOMEN at teamzelios.com. Earlier this year, our sponsor, Wahoo Fitness, did a huge giveaway here on the podcast. We caught up with Jen Matro, who won the Element Bolt bike computer. Jen, it's been a few months since you won our Wahoo Fitness sweepstakes. How has life been since you became a Wahooligan? Alyssa, is it weird to say that I love my bike computer? The Element Bolt does it all. I can see any metric I need, power, distance, cadence, but I have to say that my absolute favorite feature is how you can enter a destination into the phone app and it will instantly create a route to guide you there with the Bolt. I used that a lot in Nice when I was there for the 70.3 World Championships. Thanks, Jen. We love hearing your feedback. If any of our listeners want to give the bike trainers, bike computers, and heart rate monitors that make up the Wahoo Fitness ecosystem of products a try, head to wahoofitness.com. Hi, Abby. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. Hi, very nice to be here. Thank you guys for having me. So you've been involved with swimming as an athlete and a coach for what has probably been almost your entire life. Can you give us a little quick recap um, of your life in the pool and on the deck? Yeah, so I, you're totally right. Um, just like you grew up swimming, uh, I've been swimming since I was four years old. I still do swim, but it's a more of a looser term now that I've retired from officially like, you know, professional swimming. But I basically, I grew up kind of all over the place. Uh, I went to school, high school in Louisville, Kentucky and swam for a major club team here uh, called Lakeside Swim Team. And I kind of credit that team for making me into the swimmer that I was. I was able to swim on scholarship at the University of Georgia. So go dogs. We yes, share that. go dogs. I echo that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I did that. Um, that's where I capped off my career. Uh, I swam postgraduately for a couple years after college and kind of coincidingly started coaching at the same time. And, uh, yeah, it was a very like kind of smooth transition. I never really knew that I wanted to be a coach, but yeah, I've been coaching for almost 10 years now and it's kind of crazy. I'm still going to the pool deck every day and <laughs> it's just being on the other side. And Abby, most of our listeners are going to be triathletes and not all triathletes come from swimming backgrounds. That's for sure. So as a coach, you've worked with all types of swimmers. So you can name one or two mistakes. I'm sure that you see often in people who might be just learning to swim as an, as an adult. So can you tell us about kind of those mistakes that people could kind of keep an, an eye out for in their own form, maybe? Yeah. So, um, 
Well, I didn't really give much of my coaching background, so I'll do that like real quick. But I, uh, I love swimming stroke technique. So like, that's where I feel like my niche is and a little bit more of what I enjoy as a, as a coach. I um, mean, obviously there's, it's multifaceted to be a great athlete. You have to have great nutrition, you know, good sleep, good recovery. You obviously need to be training well and have a good training cycle, but I specifically kind of hone in on swimming stroke technique. And the reason for that was right after I graduated from the university of Georgia, I actually worked at the Olympic training center for USA swimming. Um, with within their national team department uh, under some biomechanists. And I just really kind of fell in love with the fact that like these really elite athletes were honing in on the small, finer details of swimming. And I know within the triathlon world, there's a lot of that happening within cycling. There's like, you know, if I get these lighter weighted tires, it's going to make me that much more aerodynamic and I'm going to, you know, lose that much more time. So there's a little bit of similarities there. And that's really what I think stroke technique kind of does in swimming because the drag coefficient is so much higher with the water, just having such a higher density compared to anything that you have on land. That stroke technique to me is <clears throat> a super important piece of that pie. So with that, yeah, there's a lot of triathletes that I, that I've worked with and even master swimmers or older swimmers that get started swimming um, that I feel like from a foundational level are never really taught how to float. And I think that that's one of the biggest issues, um, especially with triathletes, like people who are very much in shape, they just assume that they can float. I mean, they can run, you know, a marathon. They may be able to run a half marathon. They just ran 10 miles on Sunday, but for some reason they cannot relax in the pool and just be. Um, and I see that a lot with older swimmers and I guess I don't want to just call out triathletes, but even people who are learning to swim at a older age struggle with that. And I think that's a fundamental skill for swimming. If you don't know how to float, you're going to do a lot of things in your technique. That's just going to make you kind of like more comfortable. Also decrease your level of like maybe being scared or feel fearful of the water that will just change your technique around. Um, and kind of the second one is kind of off of that. If you don't float well, your body alignment is never going to be great. Uh, and so I think with that, there's a lot of people that swim, you know, in triathlon, you have to lift your head up. You have to know where you're going. You want to see where you're going. That's obviously not the most ideal position. Uh, so if you don't have great floating abilities, you're not going to have great body alignment. And then that kind of kicks out to the arms and legs. And you may be doing things to compensate for the fact that those kind of two fundamental skills haven't been honed in on, or maybe you haven't been coached well through them. So would you recommend someone just going to the pool and like just laying face down and floating for a few, you know, however long you can hold your breath? Yeah, honestly. And it's really interesting because I've actually kind of like had all different levels of people saying like, no, I can float. And then there's people like, no, I'm not really sure. And then you put them there and sometimes they just cannot, and they need to figure that out. They want to, you want to figure out your buoyancy in the water. You want to figure out your comfortability in the water. And if you don't understand how to breathe, which a lot of that affects your buoyancy, you're going to sink. And so, you know, we, there's so much talk in the stroke technique world of like how you should breathe and why you should breathe and how you should pull this way and all this, that, and the other. You know, when I look at swimming stroke technique, I look at it from the body first and then out to the limbs. And so it's like if the main majority of the body, the majority of where your weight is stacked is not sitting pro appropriately on the surface of the water, then everything else is going to kind of fall apart. So yeah, you can use noodles. You can put them under your armpits. You can use kickboards. You could even like float on like an actual pool floaty and then like slowly wean yourself off. But you got to eventually be able to lay on your back and breathe and just be for a second. Um, and if you have that, then that's like, cool, check mark. Let's move on to the next step. So you mentioned a few pieces of gear there, noodles, 
kickboards and and as triathletes we we do love the gear so <laughs> what kind of gear do you think every swimmer should have in her swim bag or you know on deck access to yeah i'm a big fan of uh fins i love fins um i think they just allow people to do a couple things they increase your ankle ankle flexibility. They also make you faster. They're, um, a little bit longer than the surface area of your foot. So it just makes kicking a little bit easier, especially for people who maybe don't love kicking or kicking does not love you. So a big fan of fins. I like a kickboard. There was kind of like a clickbait article that came out a year ago on swim swim. That was like kickboards are terrible for swimmers. And a bunch of people were freaking out about if I use a kickboard, am I just going to be a terrible swimmer? And it's like, no, kickboards have been around for a really long time. Like, it's not freak out about some blog that was written. I'm so guilty of that because I haven't used a kickboard in probably like 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> Except for social that, kick. Social kick I do indulge in occasionally. Well, that's, that's acceptable then, right? <laughs> so they're not bad. You're saying it's okay. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it puts you in bad body alignment. Yes. But the resistance from it builds up your leg strength. So the reality is, is when you switch to not having um, as bad a body alignment, or you're floating on top of the surface, uh, your legs are going to be stronger in any ways. A lot of people swim in bad body alignment. So it's like, you know, it's kind of twofold there, but I don't think kickboards are bad now. And so form swim goggles, they are a sponsor of our podcast and they make goggles that show training metrics, like your time and your pace per hundred right in the eye gasket of your goggles. So as you're swimming, you can just keep your eye on that. And they launched just earlier this year. So you might not have personal experience with those goggles yet, but as someone who has traveled all over the world, you've swam in a lot of pools. Have you ever found yourself wishing kind of you had that personal pace clock, like right at your eye level for, you know, for lack of a better way to say it, it's right there. Yeah. Honestly, I think, uh, like forms kind of come in and just taken on like the swimming club swimming world, the master swimming world and the triathlete world by storm. And I was actually at the American swim coaches association world clinic in Aska, and they actually premiered their goggles there. So I got to try on a pair and kind of see what they, they fit like and what they were all about. I do think that like the triathlete market and people who don't have coaches necessarily, or, you know, they go into the pool and pace clocks are maybe not out or always running. It's perfect for, I normally swim with a team. So I normally have a pace clock. And so I don't necessarily like do a whole lot of like swimming on my own. Um, but I can definitely see where that would come in and that need would fit a lot of people who definitely would need it. I hate when there is no pace clock or when you can't see it or when it's too far away and I have terrible eyesight. I definitely, <laughs> it, you know, you get, you, you swim at the university of Georgia and there's, if anyone has been at that pool, there's like clocks everywhere, everywhere you look, there's <laughs> clocks and you get very used to that. And then you go to like a normal life pool and you're like, wait, wait, there's not a clock within like 10 degrees of every line of vision. It's <laughs> yeah. Those are like the hard things when you graduate, but back to you, Abby, <laughs> your swim like a fish coaching philosophy is based on visual learning and teaching swimming technique through videos. And this is obviously an audio-only environment on the Iron Women podcast currently until we figure out how to make this visual. But I'm still <laughs> going to ask you, do you have a favorite drill for beginner swimmers? And could you do your best to describe it for our listeners? I mean, you already mentioned floating. Is there something, what would be, is there something beyond floating? Yeah, um, my favorite drill is actually called the connection drill. Um, I was taught it from a guy named John Olson who swam at the university of Alabama and was an Olympian, I think in the late nineties, but yeah, basically is working on rhythm of the stroke, which comes into the body alignment and the connection and also making sure you're floating well. And I think it's perfect for triathletes because I feel like 
I kind of always have the question come up when I'm speaking to the triathlon world of like, how much should I kick? Um, when I'm swimming. And so this drill doesn't necessarily make you over kick or under kick. It just ensures that the timing of the kick actually creates like the right connection within the body as the stroke is happening. And the weird part about this is for most, I, I feel like, is it right to say that most triathletes normally have running and biking backgrounds as a, as opposed to swimming backgrounds? Would you guys agree with that? I'd say a lot. Yes. Yeah. I would say, yes, I would agree. Yeah. And so I feel like for people who maybe are more on land oriented, you learn how to run or you probably get running cues that like basically ensure the same connection happens, um, on land, but not necessarily in the water. So basically what I'm talking about is that when you enter, no matter what hand you're entering with, it's either your right or your left at the same time, coincidingly, the opposite leg should be kicking down. And what that does is it, it basically, fires all the muscles, uh, in your spinal fascial line, which is just a really fancy word of saying like, there's a diagonal line of muscles that run through your body and it's connected through this fascia. And so if you basically contract it all at the same time, it balances out your stroke and it also in, engages all those muscles at once. Um, so when your right hand enters, the left leg would kick down. And then when your left hand enters, the right leg kicks down. That's also the setup for a six beat kick. So if you are someone who does technically swim with a six beat kick, you have to hit those kicks correctly. And at that right timing to truly do six beats. And you'll see a lot of people who actually kick down with the same arm, same leg. And that's where you see a little bit of jerky strokes or uneven strokes because they're overloading the body. And so they're weighting down the body in the pool, um, which causes that up and down motion that you, you may see above water. I'm definitely going to bring this into masters because I was getting some critique from my coach the last, just last week on my kicking situation. So maybe I'll give this one a, a shot to help me improve. But we recently talked with professional open water swimmer and Tokyo bound us Olympian, Ashley Twitchell earlier this year. And she told us that she does 95% of her swim training in the pool. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on training in a pool versus open water training for triathletes. Like, do you think that open water time is a must have, or are there things that we can be doing in the pool to get us ready for the challenges that we face in a lake or a river or an ocean swim when we race? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a balance to that for sure. I think for the ease of people who may, you know, live in more Northern areas or places where it gets colder or they don't, may not live near something that they can actually swim in. Obviously the pool is like kind of the next best option, but there is something to be said for swimming in a environment where you can't see and a pool is not necessarily going to offer you that. Um, I did a half Ironman, um, back in 2014 in new Orleans and Haley, I'm pretty sure you did that one too, right? I have a picture of us, uh, together there. So yes, we were there. <laughs> was there. Yeah. But that water was like extremely dirty. Like I could not see where I was swimming. So yeah, I mean, obviously you need to know how to swim straight without swimming, you know, into anybody or anything. I mean, it's kind of impossible in triathlon sometimes, but like, you know, you can't really replace open water training. I do think though, on the flip side, like in water training or in a pool training can mimic open water. Like I've seen Tyler Fenwick, who's now at the university of Virginia, take out all the lanes and put in. So who's. <laughs> yeah. And I think Ashley might've trained with him for a while, but he's trained like a lot of open water people that are on the U S national team or even on the Olympic team. So there's ways to morph the environment to make that environment similar to an open water environment. But I do think aside from all of that, 
there's something to be said for doing flip turns and underwaters and all that stuff that you do in a pool that you don't do in open water, which I think a lot of triathletes are a little adverse to, cause they're like, well, I don't actually use it in my race. So why do I need to do this? But if you think about it, just from like a physiological perspective, if you're spending more time under the surface of the water, you have a higher speed, you're working on body alignment, you're looking on working on, you know, keeping your drag coefficient really low, but you're also working on your hypoxic capacity. So like at the end of the day, you're working on getting in better shape and that's not necessarily something you can do in open water. You know, you're not just going to like not breathe and see where you're going. So there's, there's benefits to, to both sides. And I think for people who are just wanting that extra edge in their triathlon, and maybe they don't have the swimming background coming in like that, those increases in your, you know, anaerobic capacity and whatnot too, will pay dividends to longer races. Abby, we know that the swim is often one of the biggest hurdles that keeps people from even competing in their first triathlon. And that might be because of a lack of swim experience or maybe a fear of open water swimming. So do you have any advice for someone who's curious about triathlon, but they just have no idea where to start when it comes to swimming? Yeah, I would say for sure do it. If you have any sort of like inkling or something that's kind of like burning at you and you're thinking about it, you know, you, you can do it. I think a lot of people just need to also hear that there's ways to learn how to swim as an adult. Like there's not, everyone was taught how to swim. And some people were just grew up in, in areas that swimming is not very, a very predominant sport. And USA swimming has tried over the past like decade or so to really kind of hone in on that and offer swim lessons, but there's still kind of a little bit of a taboo between adult swim lessons for adults. But if you want to do a triathlon, there is ways to get lessons as adults. There are master's programs. There are coaches out there that will spend time with you to make sure that you understand like general water safety, how to feel comfortable in the water, and then also how to swim efficiently. Um, so if you have the inkling, go for it. Uh, just like Google us master swimming, look for someone, email them, send them that, you know, and take that first step. And you'll probably be really pumped up when you cross the finish line. And Swim Like a Fish has a team of experts across several areas that you work with. So can you tell us about the other professionals that you have in your corner and where our listeners can go to find out more about you, your team, and the offerings? Yeah. So Swim Like a Fish is a company that I created back in May. Basically wanted to give people really good content and really good coaching access no matter where you are in the world. So what I found is I've worked with a lot of swimmers both, you know, American, not American. And I really wanted to bring kind of my philosophy and what I thought to anyone anywhere. Um, it's kind of just what we were saying. Like some people are just, you know, you don't choose where your family lives, um, necessarily. And, you know, might be a military, you may be stationed somewhere and you may not have access to a coach. And so I really wanted to utilize technology and the internet to be able to work with people no matter where they were. So basically I built out swim like a fish. It's a membership site based service where you can sign on and you can learn any aspect of different swimming strokes. So the goal is to build out this huge library where if you're a swimmer and you want to learn something about, you know, one of the four strokes, or if you're a triathlete and you want to come in, you want to learn more about sight breathing or how to start a triathlon race really well, uh, you can go into the library, click on that specific module, takes you through all steps of the learning curve um, where you basically learn how to identify what I'm talking about technique wise, then how to actually see it. And then from there, how you would implement it. And then finally, how you would teach someone else to do it. So the goal is to not necessarily coach people on a regular basis, but to help people become 
better educated so that they become better coaches of themselves or either people around them if they are a coach. So it's uh, all visual, visually based, as Haley said earlier. Um, 65% of our population are our visual learners. That's why we all love our cell phones and computers and all these things. And with swimming specifically, it's a little bit behind. Uh, most of my swim coaching that I was ever given um, was either auditory or tactile. So someone manipulated my body and kind of showed me what to do. And so when I started working at USA Swimming and I saw these cameras and equipments and things that people were doing to show, you know, our Olympians what to do better it really kind of struck something in me. And I was like, I don't want to just bring this to USA swimming only. I want to kind of help elevate the sport of swimming in general and bring it to anybody who, uh, you know, is just looking to get better. Well, Abby, where can we find you on, on social media, on the internet? And then also because you brought up the race in new Orleans in 2014, are we, are we going to see you on a triathlon start line anytime soon? You know, I was actually just texting Steph Williams the other day, and I told her that I was coming on this podcast. For those of you guys who are listening, Steph Williams is an assistant coach or associate head coach. I don't know what her specific title is. I think associate head coach. Associate head coach at University of Georgia. She is a big deal. She is, you know, yeah, she's awesome. Um, But she's the one who did the uh, half Ironman with me. And I asked her, I was like, you know, I'm kind of getting the itch. Like, I'd love to say I've done an Ironman. Haley does them like every three weeks. So I feel like if she does them every three weeks, I should be able to do like once in my whole life. (laughs) She was like, yeah, I'm one and done. So good luck with that. Uh, We should bring Steph out of retirement and you. And and for the record, (laughs) I'm so glad I give off the the illusion that I do one every three weeks. Alyssa here actually does one every three weeks. Um, But I'm okay with that illusion. People can think that about me. But um, so where where can we find you? We'll we'll hold out. We'll give you a little more time. You just, you're building a business. You're doing the entrepreneur thing. You're young. You have plenty of time. So, but where can we, if someone wants to get in touch with you about your swim, like a fish membership, where should they go? Yeah. So the website is just swim like a fish.org. Um, I'm on all social media platforms. So I'm on Instagram, um, Instagram and my Instagram handle is at, and is the T H E a fish, um, one, the number one. And then my Facebook one, they didn't have, uh, actually swim like a fish. Someone had already taken that tagline. So it's facebook.com slash fish swim faster. Awesome. We will definitely link to all those in our show notes. And thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, no problem. Thank you guys for having me. This is Haley, and I've spent most of my swimming career squinting at pace clocks or trying to catch a glimpse of my watch during intervals. If you're like me and love knowing your swim splits but hate finding a clock, there's a better way. Form Swim Goggles are the first premium goggles with a smart display that shows your metrics while you swim. You heard that right. Form goggles have a see-through display in one of the eye cups so you can see your splits, pace, distance, or any other metric right in front of you. I've done a few workouts with the Form Swim goggles, and the coolest thing is once you press start, the goggles actually know when you're swimming and when you're resting. There's no need to press another button until you finish your workout. Want to learn more? Head to formswim.com. This is Alyssa, and as a triathlete, I am all about efficiency. That's why I'm excited that VeloFix is now a part of the Live Feisty community. VeloFix is North America's largest mobile bike shop fleet, and they know that your most valuable asset is time. VeloFix will meet you wherever you are at in your day so you don't miss a beat. Or if you have some time, you can hang out in the mobile bike shop and enjoy a complimentary cup of coffee to learn about the service being done. Interested? Here's how it works. Head to VeloFix.com or call 1-855-VeloFix Set your appointment and the local Velofix technician will come directly to you. 
Book your service today using promo code FEISTY so they know you're an Iron Women listener. The first 100 listeners to book today using promo code FEISTY will receive a major tune for the price of a minor tune. Again, that's VeloFix.com and promo code FEISTY to enhance your bike service experience today. If any of our listeners are interested in learning more about Abby and her programs, you can check out swimlikeafish.org and also check out her social media because she offers a lot of swim tips and technique tips on there as well. And we'll link to everything in our show notes. And of course, please continue to rate and review the Iron Women podcast on the app that you choose to listen to us on. It does help a lot. And also check out our Patreon community at patreon.com forward slash live feisty. You can join our community, help support us doing these interviews and bringing you this content week after week. All right, Haley. Well, I hope you really enjoy basking in your amazing marathon. I hope the soreness, I kind of hope the soreness lingers so that like it keeps reminding you of how well you ran um, just for a little bit, but hydrate with a ton of noon. I'm sure you'll flush it all out soon and um, just, just enjoy it. Thank you. I will. I'll enjoy every sore step. Just like you said. Thanks, Alyssa. I'll talk to you later. Bye, Haley. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, like, and comment on iTunes. My favorite podcast hosts are Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. My favorite editor is Aaron Hamilton. The Iron Women podcast is a live feisty media production.